Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. Father, this morning as we look at the story of Job, I pray with an open heart, with uh, attentive ears, God, that we would learn the lesson from this story about Job. We would see that uh, Job was a man that, that, that lived a life that made worship possible even if worship didn't make any sense to the world around him. Father, I pray that we would live the same way. In Christ's name, amen. Now, folks, I remember hearing a story about a little boy on Palm Sunday who was homesick with a sore throat. He didn't get to go to church, so he and Mom stayed homesick, and his little sister and dad went on to church. Well, after church, they come home, uh, little sister come carrying a palm branch into the house. And he said, what is that? She said, it's a palm branch. He said, where'd you get that? She said, Sunday school. He said, really? She said, yeah. He said, well, what is it for? She said, well, people held him over Jesus' head when he walked by. Little boy stuck his lip out and said, I knew it. If I didn't get to go to church, that would be the time that Jesus showed up. Uh, folks, we've already established going through these messages about worship and about spiritual awakening. We've already established over the last few weeks that God desires to show up at church anytime His people gather. Amen? I mean, God desires to be here with us. And that ought to be the rule when the church comes together. Not the exception. It, the presence of God, it ought to be a normal occurrence when we have church together. I've often said this and I stand by it. Worship for a Christian, it ought to be as natural as swimming is to a fish. You agree with that? I mean, I, I, let me say it again. It should not be the exception. It ought to be the rule. We should expect the presence of God to be at a worship service. One, one man said this. He said, worship, true worship is a stairway. He said, on which there's movements, movement in both directions. God that comes down to man and man goes up toward God. That's true worship. Now, I want you to notice with me this morning, we're looking at the scene and the situation in the book of Job where worship didn't seem to make sense, I'm sure, to the world around Job. Now, the book of Job is a, is a pretty fascinating book. Many scholars attribute the writing of the book of Job to Moses. Many of them, Old Testament scholars, say that Moses gathered the materials while he was on the backside of the desert in the land of Midian, or that Moses discovered the book of Job while he was there on the backside of uh, of the desert there in the land of Midian. Other scholars, they say, well, Solomon must have written the words to the book of Job because a lot of Job reminds us of the pages of the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote. But one Old Testament scholar, I think, said it the best. He said the author of the book of Job is God Himself. And then he states, the knowledge of Jehovah shows that its author must not have been, or must have been in light of revelation, and could not have been a mortal, ordinary human being. So all candidates are ruled out except Jehovah God Himself. Now I agree with that, folks. And listen, we may not know this side of heaven, and we may not know in heaven who it was, the human author that penned the words to the book of Job. But whoever it was, I assure you they had a firm grasp on genuine worship. 
Worship, again, that didn't make sense in, from man's perspective. Now, let me explain what I mean. I want to call your attention to three important truths this morning in the story of Job. How many of you have ever read the entire book of Job? You know the story of Job pretty well. How many of you know it real well? How many of you like to come up here and I'll come and listen to you tell the story? Three things I want to share with you this morning. And the first thing that we see is Job himself, the life of this man. I want you to look at verse 1. It, it tells us volumes about Job. It gives an impressive introduction. It says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man, notice this, was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So the character, folks, and conduct of Job, it was held in the class all by itself. He was a man that could look up to heaven. He could sing that old hymn, Nothing between my soul and the Savior, not of this world's elusive dreams. I've renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. Now I want you to notice, God specifically lists four distinct traits about Job's character. It says, first of all, he was perfect. Now we know that doesn't mean that he was sinless. That word perfect means whole, complete. It means blameless. So no, nobody could make an accusation against Job. Nobody could charge his life. What that scripture is saying, that, that word is saying in the scripture, is that he lived above reproach. Now look at the next word. He was upright. The Hebrew word used for upright speaks of that which is straight, or that which is fair and plain or, or even. Then we're told he feared God and he eschewed evil. Now that word eschewed, let me bring it from the King James into modern English. The Hebrew word that's used there, it means to habitually turn away from something. So in other words, when it came to any form of sin, Job turned away from it, got as far away from it as he possibly could. You know, I'm reminded of a guy that was filling an application out for a job. And he was uh, filling out a questionnaire. And one of those questions asked said, have you ever been arrested? And he wrote, no, across it. The next question, which was supposed to be answered by those who answered yes to the first question, have you ever been arrested? He wrote, no. The next question said, why? And so he wrote in there, because I've never been caught. <laughs> Folks, listen to me. Job never got caught in sin. The reason he never got caught in sin because he never got caught around sin. The reading here tells us sin was something that Job, he didn't go looking for. It was something he looked to stay away from. Now what's interesting, all four of these adjectives, they describe every aspect of Job's life. Notice, again, the word perfect. That refers to his relationship with himself. Uh, notice the words uh, feared God. That refers to his relationship with God. And then it says that he was upright and eschewed evil. That refers to his relationship with other people. In other words, his outward life was consistent and it matched his inward life. All right, What was perceived on the outside was the same as what he possessed on the inside. So to put it in modern language, his walk lined up with his talk and his talk lined up with his walk. Now I want you to get a hold of the great description here that's given of Job and realize why it's such a great description. The reason it is is because this was not man's assessment of Job. This was God's assessment of Job. Now people can say a lot of great things about us because they really don't know us, do they? They don't know our heart. God knows our hearts. 
And friend, let me tell you something. When God gives a description about a man like this, that's something to pay attention to. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I would love to have those four traits included in a spiritual resume for me. Wouldn't you? And my prayer is God would give us Christians today who are like Job, that are blameless, they're upright, they fear God, and they shun evil. Not only was his life a blameless life, but you know what? It was a blessed life. Let me read you a passage of Scripture that over the years, the older I get, the more I realize how true God's Word is. And there are Scriptures that I looked at when I was younger and thought, yeah, that's great, I might use it as a funeral or something like that. But then I began to realize, this is a life verse. This is a promise. I want to read you. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor setteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Verse 3 says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now let me tell you something, folks. I believe... The primary reason that Job was blessed in his life because Job was blameless in his life. And God blessed him. God honored his life of consecration and dedication to him. Because look at verse 2. Notice God blesses him with seven sons and three daughters. Ten kids. You say, really, is that a blessing, preacher? Well, it was back then. You know, I still think it's a blessing today. The Bible says... Uh, uh, like arrows in the hand of a mighty man are children. So, you know, Marsh and I used to think, well, there's 12 arrows in a quiver, usually. So we need to have 12 kids, right? That's blessing. Now, I know some people don't agree with that. But believe it or not, kids are a blessing. You say, well, you hadn't raised the kids I've raised. Well, uh, I've raised some that are knuckleheads at times, but they're still a blessing. Amen? I don't think a parent truly loves their kids wouldn't say that. They are a blessing but he had 10 kids now uh look at uh verse 3 god blessed him with great substance said 7,000 sheep 3,000 camel 500 yoke of oxen 500 she asses or donkeys and a very great household and now this all this gave job this distinction of being the greatest of all the men of the east i mean this guy was blessed he was rich he, he, was, uh, he had a huge ranch. I heard one preacher say, some of you kids don't know who I'm talking about. He was the Ben Cartwright of his day. Now I want to say this, folks. Contrary to what many Baptists believe, contrary to what Baptists believe, yeah, and I said that, God does want to bless His children. He wants to bless us. I, I've often said I firmly believe God's far more willing to bless us than we are to be blessed. To handle that blessing. And listen, God is not some miser. He's not some tyrant sitting on the throne in heaven with a clenched fist. Friend, you and I, we might be tightwads. We might be greedy. God is not. But listen, I do believe that God blesses us uh, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Does that make sense to you? God blesses us not by what we do, but because of what He does. And He gives because He chooses to give. Not because we deserve it. Friend, that's why it's called grace. It's all because He desires to do so. However, I do believe that God places a premium on lives of those that are separated, consecrated, and dedicated to Him. 
Just like in the case of Job. If we'll see to it and live a blameless life, I believe God blesses that life. Secondly, I want you to notice as we examine Job's life, the second thing we see in the story is he experienced a great loss. Now if the story of Job ended in verse 3 and then picked back up in chapter 42 about verse 10, it would be an epic tale. Right? This man's doubly blessed. Has it all. I imagine the Word of Faith movement would preach it that way. But let's get honest about it. If we skipped all those verses, folks, we wouldn't see his life truly represented. And we wouldn't see the loss that he faced. Notice verse 6. A change begins to take place. There's a scene change here. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also with them, or among them. Now I've had a lot of people say, Well, that proves right there. Satan come into heaven now. You can look at it that way if you want to, but the Bible never says nothing about the location. It doesn't say heaven, okay? So what we have here somewhere in the realm of eternity, a meeting is taking place between God and angelic hosts. And the devil uh, comes to this meeting, and because of this meeting, a recommendation is made, and Job suffers a great loss. Now this meeting was called to order by God Himself, the sovereign God. Now, I want you to understand this. And then there's a sovereign recommendation that takes place. So get the picture. God, who's presiding over a meeting of heavenly beings, He's about to assign a task, you know, to His angelic beings. And here comes Lucifer, all right, the angel of light. Now, look what the scene, pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 1. God asked Satan, He said, Whence comest thou? In other words, where have you been? Satan answers, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. In other words, Satan, along with his demonic host, were looking for someone to tempt. Looking for someone to deal misery to. Now look at verse 8. God in His sovereign nature, He makes a recommendation to Satan. Look at verse 8. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And then look in chapter 2, verse 1. may have to look across a page or turn a page there. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. Another eternal meeting takes place. However, this meeting in chapter 2, verse 1, takes place after Job's already begun to suffer. But again, we hear a sovereign recommendation. Because look at chapter 2, verse 3. Again, God says, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. So listen, God had complete, total confidence in the integrity of Job. Did you catch that? There existed not one ounce of doubt in the mind of God as to whether Job would remain faithful through suffering, sorrow, and sickness. You say, why are you making a point of that? Because you need to understand all that befell Joe passed through God to begin with. Okay? We talk about God being sovereign. We want to, you know, glibly respond that God's a sovereign God. This story proves the fact. God is a sovereign God. God put Job's name on the list and gave the devil permission to tempt him. So the recommendation didn't come from Satan. Let me say it again. It came from the one and only sovereign God. 
Now, folks, anyone who knows the Bible or anyone who knows the Bible and knows of God knows that one of God's most endearing attributes is faithfulness. God is faithful to His promises. He's faithful to His people because He's faithful to His person. Now, the issue, folks, is not how much faith do we have in God, but how much faith does God have in us? Do you notice He said, He's a man of integrity. He didn't lose his integrity, and he won't lose it. So let me ask, could God say that about us? I mean, what he said about Job. If the devil went before God looking for somebody to tempt, could God say, have enough confidence in us to say, well, have you considered my servant Jim? Or you considered my servant Damon or Scotty or Steve or Jeff or whoever it may be, put your name right there. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks. The televangelist and the word of faith world, they want to say that if a person has enough faith, they'll be healed. However, that is never the real issue. They've missed it altogether. The real issue is not do you have enough faith to be healed. I've said this before and listen close. It's not do you have enough faith to be healed, but do you have enough faith to stay sick and praise God anyway? That's the real question. What if God doesn't heal you? You still going to love Him? I mean, what if God doesn't take the pain away? You still going to serve Him? What if God doesn't change the circumstances? Will you still honor Him? Listen to me, Christian. Again, it's not how much faith we have in God because we know God is faithful. His Word tells us that time and time again. And we've witnessed it over and over again. But I'm going to ask again, how much faith does God have in us? Could he say about us what he said about Job? Now, the sovereign recommendation is followed by a satanic accusation. God's offered up Job to Satan for trial, for tribulation. Basically, God says, Satan, I'll save you the trouble of trying to find somebody. He said, look at my servant Job. Consider my servant Job. Then comes the accusation. Look at verse 9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not? So the question's simple. He's saying, do you think Job serves you in vain? Do you think Job serves you for nothing? And then look at verse 10 and 11. He says, Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Now this is Satan talking to God. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Verse 11. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to thy face. Do you see what the, the accusation that Satan is making? He's saying nobody is good, God, without cause. He is saying nobody loves you for the sake of loving you. Satan, in effect, was saying that everyone is selfish. All men are selfish. And men only love God because God is blessing them or because what God can do for them. Job, he says, God, Job only loves you because of what you've given him, not because of who you are. So the, the, the accusation, folks, that Satan is making was not only directed at Job, it was directed toward God. Satan was insinuating that God could no longer inspire anything but mercenary love. And if, if his accusation is correct, then no one would serve God because of who God is. No one would adore and worship and love God simply because of who He is. You say, why would you say all that, that that's what the accusation means? Because the word is the way it's written. I want you to notice in verse 11, 
Notice the two personal pronouns. He says, put forth thine hand. And then he says, and he will curse thee to thy face. In the Hebrew, those words translated thine and thee, they're used to address someone of equal or inferior status. So Satan, in other words, Satan, his accusation, he was exalting himself. He was making himself equal with God. And perhaps in his arrogance, he even was looking down on God. So what Satan was doing, in essence, was saying, God, listen to me. I'm going to call the shots on this one. This is my field of expertise. I know what I'm talking about. Give me free reign, and I'm telling you, I'll prove to you that I'm right and that you're wrong about Job. But you know what? God knew something Satan didn't know, so he signs that permission slip. says, you got it. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, with God's permission, Job's losses began. And you know the story. In a brief hour, folks, uh, he encounters the loss of a lifetime. The first thing that comes is reversal of fortune or, or his collapse of fortune. In verses 14 and 15, he loses 500 yoke of oxygen. Uh, verse 16, 7,000 sheep. Verse 17, 3,000 camels. His flocks, his fortune, they're gone. The first blow touched his means of labor. Folks, it touched how he uh, chief source of income, how he made a living. His wealth, his food, his clothing, his shelter. And then after that came emotional tragedy. Because in verse 18 and 19, all ten of his children are killed. They're all dead. And then after that comes sudden physical misery. Because you see in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Satan once again goes before God and he says, All right, I've taken from him. God says, Still he ain't turned from me. Satan said, Well, skin for skin. Let me have his life. Let me touch him physically. He'll curse you. God says, you can have his health, but you can't have him. So Satan, like a dog on a chain, goes and tries one more time. And the Bible says that he touches Job. Look at verses 7 and 8. Smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a pot shear to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Folks, there's no certain way to diagnose what ailment that Job had, his condition. Most scholars believe that it was probably the boils were symptoms of the black plague or the black leprosy, if you want to call it that. It was one of the most hopeless, loathsome conditions of the ancient world. We only know that Job's covered from head to toe in these boils. He is in physical misery. So his financial reversal happens. He has emotional tragedy, loses his children. There's physical misery. His health's gone. He's lost it all. In a matter of hours, he's lost it all. And then because of all that, he is experiencing spiritual anguish. Because notice verse 9 of chapter 2. Job's wife, and she must have been a sweetheart, she gives him some advice. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. Some of y'all are giggling. I hope your wives aren't that way. Look how Job replies in verse 10. I love his response. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil or bad at the hand of God? However, folks, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read that Job, he cursed his day. He said, I, I wish I'd never been born. But over the next 36 chapters, Job repeatedly questions his faith. 
Now, I want to say something. I've said it before, but I, I, it bears repeating. I've had people often say, you know, uh, we should never question God. Folks, that's a foolish statement. Job questioned God. He questioned his faith. He questioned uh, his future. He questioned his heavenly Father. Now, let me clarify something. When I say question God, there's a vast difference between questioning God and challenging God. All right? Questioning God, that's human nature. Why? Because we're not God. And sometimes we don't understand God's will and God's workings. And God knows that we don't understand at times. But listen, when a person charges God, they're bringing an accusation to God. They're challenging God's authority and God's ability. They're shaking their fist in, in God's face in defiance is what they're doing. There's nothing wrong with questioning why, folks. Why? Father, why did it have to happen this way? Now understand, just because you ask why, that doesn't mean God's going to answer you. Because once again, you and I are not God. Because notice, look at chapter 1, verse 22 again. Job was not guilty of charging God or challenging God. We read that Job did not charge God foolishly. He questioned, but he never challenged God. Now, if you've suffered a loss, maybe experienced a tragedy, went through something that left you with more questions than answers, don't allow the devil to convince you that you, you shouldn't question God. God desires for you to come draw near to Him and to share your heart with Him. He already knows. There's nothing wrong with questioning. Listen to me, church, and you've heard me say this before. There are many things I don't know and I don't understand. And, you know, there are many things that are far too wonderful for my finite mind to grasp. But of all the things I do not know, there are two things that I am absolutely certain of. And you want me to share them with you? Number one, there is a God. And number two, I am not Him. And I'll take it a step farther and say, neither are you. God doesn't answer to me or you. God doesn't report to me. He doesn't owe me or you an explanation or justification on anything. He's God. You know, not once in all my life has God leaned over the, the, the golden seal of heaven's glory and said, hey, Jim, I think I'm going to do this. What do you think about it? God ever done that with you? No, friend, listen. He is God in, of, and by Himself. He alone is God. So listen to what I'm telling you. If something passes to us, we talk about the sovereignty of God, you need to grasp this. I don't care what it is. If something passes to us, it has to pass through God. If God allows it to come to us, then that means God either allowed it, approved it, or assigned it to us. That's the sovereignty of God. Now, we like to think of the sovereignty of God when everything's going according to our plan and purpose. That's not the sovereignty of God. See, what we have to understand is no matter what we face, that does not change who God is. It'll never change who God is. And since God is God, He's in control. He's the one that sits on the throne. And here's something else. You, you've heard it, but it bears repeating. God does not make any mistakes. I mean, everything God does, it has to work according to His plan, His purpose, and His promise to use it for our good 
and his glory. No matter what it is. And you know what I find? Here's the amazing part of this story. You say, preacher, you're running behind. That's all right. Listen, listen fast, okay? Here's the amazing thing to this story, folks. After you examine his life and you see all the loss that he experienced, the next thing you see is that it leads Job to worship. To worship. Someone's well said, the more we trust the sovereignty of heaven, the less we fear the calamities of earth. And I agree with that. When troubles and trials come, it doesn't take a spiritual person to throw in the towel, to give up, and to quit. But a spiritual person is one who, in spite of their questions, in spite of their doubts, in spite of their fears, they continue to love God enough to trust Him, serve Him, and honor Him. Now, I want to share with you one of the most powerful statements I believe I have ever heard. And I heard it from Henry Blackaby, the man who authored the Experiencing God course. He said this one time. When you face a crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what you really, truly believe about God. Now, let me ask you something. I would say that Job, in our story, certainly experienced a crisis of belief. Wouldn't you? I mean, I don't know anybody that's faced what Job faced. Never met anybody. And I doubt any of us will ever face what Job faced. But what he did next, it clearly reveals what he believes about God. Because notice how he responded to God. Get the picture. Job's lost it all. He's faced uh, financial ruin, emotional tragedy, physical misery. He's lost his flocks, his food, his family, uh, his fortune, and his health. But look at verse 20 of chapter 1. It says, Job rose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down on the ground, and worshipped. Now what I want you to understand is he lost it all. He was left with nothing. But his first response wasn't to whine. It was to worship. I find that amazing. In response to God, he, begot, he became desperate for God. You say, how do you know that? Well, Scripture says he ran his mantle. Mantle was a robe or a tunic that men of, of certain standing, social standing, wore in ancient times. And it was uh, customary... When they received bad news, it was to show it was a gesture to show immediate grief. They would tear their robe. And the shaving of the head, folks, that was another ancient custom. And that was observed all the way from Mesopotamia to Canaan. And it symbolized agony when faced with a desperate time. So understand, Job was letting it be known. He was in desperation. And he desperately wanted God. He desperately sought God. You say, how do you know? Because he responds in humiliation. He falls on the ground in submission and surrender to God. Job humbles himself before God. It's interesting Job fell down on the ground because, listen, let's be honest, that's really the only place we deserve to be before God. Do you agree? It's on the ground. And I'm going to tell you this, we, we come from dust, We'll be going back to dust one day. And to me, that's proof positive. We have absolutely nothing to be proud of on our own. Because think about it. Our uh, father, spiritually speaking, is Abraham. Our grandfather is Adam. Our great-grandfather is dirt. That's where we all come from, right? And one day, we're going back to dirt. Amazingly enough, Job's descript, uh, desperation and humiliation leads to adoration. You see what he did? It says he worshipped in verse 20. Now understand, that word worship is the same word used in Genesis 22.5 when it speaks of Abraham's act when commanded to offer up Isaac. Desperation. He worshipped. The Hebrew word that's used means to, to prostrate oneself. To lay face down in the dust. 
Now, Satan's accusation was that Job, he didn't serve God, love God, and worship God just because he was God, but only because of the blessing he received from God. Satan was wrong, wasn't he? Job had nothing else. Job had nothing to offer. Job, he did not curse God. He did not blame God. He worshiped God. Everything else had been taken away from him. All he had left was his worship, and he freely gives that of his own accord to God. Friend, that's true genuine worship, and that does not make sense to the world. Listen, Job's worship, I find this amazing. It didn't begin in chapter 42 after God restored him. It began in chapter 1 after God allowed Satan to break him. He worshiped God. Now, church... That's worship again that doesn't make sense. How could a man who's lost it all and has no hopes of recovery respond in worship? Well, the answer is it can't happen naturally. It has to be supernatural. Job's proof positive that true worship is not based on how we feel. All right? True worship is not based on how we feel because I'm pretty sure with everything going on in Job's life, he didn't feel like worshiping. You know, I've heard people say, well, I just don't feel like worshiping. I just don't feel like coming to church. I just don't feel like serving God. I just don't feel like. It's not based on feeling. True worship's not based on feeling. I'll tell you something else. This proves to me true worship's not based on circumstances. I mean, that was, how bad, how much more of a bad circumstance could Job have had? And he still worshiped God. So you say, well, if it's not based on feelings and circumstances... What's it based on? Well, real genuine worship is based solely, solemnly, and supremely on who God is. That's true genuine worship. We don't worship the gifts, folks. We worship the giver. We don't worship the, uh, the provisions. We worship the provider. And here's the thing about it. Even if those gifts quit coming, God's still the giver. Even if those provisions stop, God is still the provider. And true worship means that we rise above the ashes of circumstances to a God who is worthy, was worthy, is worthy, will always be worthy of the glory, praise, adoration, and honor that's due Him. Why? Not because of what He does for us. Not because of what He's done for us. Not because of what He could do for us. But because simply of who He is. He deserves our worship. Let me ask you a question. How will you respond to God in your hour of trouble, in your hour of trial and tribulation? That's an important question because I'm going to tell you again, folks, how you respond will ultimately reflect what you believe and how you feel about God, what you think about God. Now, those how Job, he responds to God. The reason he responds the way he does is because he recalls something. He recalls something about God. How could Job respond in such a way? Well, the answer is found. Look at verse 21. Job recalls something I think we all need to remember. He says in verse uh, 21, he says, naked, uh, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. Now, put this out of the King James English into modern English. What Job is doing, he is recalling two inevitable stages of life. You know what those stages are? Birth and death. These are two things over which Job knew he had no control over. And the only remaining question was, what happens between these two times? In the interlude between birth and death. Well, the answer is in verse 21. He says, and the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. 
In other words, you know what Job does in the midst of all his trials and tribulation? All the, the pain and the suffering he's in. Job looks face to face into the sovereignty of God. And he realizes who God is. Adam Clark, the, the late Methodist British theologian, gives an excellent commentary on Job's statement. He says, as if Job said, I had no earthly possessions when I came into this world. I cannot have less going out of it. What I have, now listen to this. What I have, the Lord has gave me, as it was his free gift to do so, and he has the right to recall it any time when it pleases him. And I owe him gratitude for the time he has permitted me to enjoy these gifts. Folks, we need to remember that about our lives. All that we have, and I, I listen, even the next breath you take is because of the grace of Almighty God. He can take it back anytime he wants to because he and he alone is God. Job lost it all, but he remembers when he, he came from nothing. And he said, that's okay, I came from nothing. If nothing is returned, then I'll go out with nothing. He said, so anything that God gives me is better than the nothing I have. So basically, folks, the only conclusion is the last part of verse 21. Look at it again. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That Hebrew word for blessed, folks, it's the root derivative of our English word eulogy. Now, you know what a eulogy is. That's something that's, that's read at a funeral. It talks about somebody's, usually their good deeds or acts of kindness. It, it memorializes, it remembers somebody. You know, folks, what Job's worship really said? Job said, the Lord gave, even though I came in with nothing, the Lord gave to me. Now the Lord has taken it away, and even though I'm going to go out with nothing, he said, I still can't find anything bad to say about God. So all I can say is, praise Him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, all that I've had was by God's hand. And if I leave with nothing, same way I come into this world. Through it all, Job knew God was sovereign. He reminded himself of that. But Job, I believe also he could trust in the heart of God. And amazingly enough, he worshipped God, even though God allowed Satan, gave Satan permission to break him. Folks, that, that is definitely worship that does not make sense to this world. I'm going to close here, but I'm going to ask you a question. What, what is your ulterior motive toward God? Let me ask you, Christian, are, are you serving Him only because of what He has done for you? Do you love Him only because of what He has given you? Or do you worship Him simply because of who He is? Your answer to that is going to reveal, reveal your level of worship. And I want to say this. Maybe there's someone here today and, and your heart's filled with pain. Maybe pain from the death of a loved one. Maybe, maybe your heart's broken because a spouse has left you. Maybe you're grieving because of a child that's out in the world that you can't seem to get a hold of, that you can't seem to bring back. Maybe, uh, maybe there's pain, there's emptiness that you feel over a bad report that the doctor's given you recently. I want to tell you, and, or maybe there's a million other things going on in your life. But listen to me, all those things can serve one of two purposes. One, they can drive you away from God. You can become bitter. You can challenge God. You can challenge who He is, His authority. Or two, it can draw you near to the heart of God where you should be. Now I want to tell you, if you will respond 
through faith, no matter what you're going through, through faith you will trust God enough to keep on loving Him, serving Him, honoring Him, then you'll have risen above the tragedies of your circumstances. And friend, you'll have true, genuine worship. Worship that blesses and praises God, which is what God desires. And worship that doesn't make sense to a lost world. But it depends on how you respond to your situation, your circumstances of life. I want to encourage you to respond like Job. Remember, no matter what you face, that does not change who God is. Do you bow your heads, please?